Faith and Reason Podcasts, new media for the new evangelization from Franciscan University of Steubenville. Find more at faithandreason.com. Paul asked us to do this. Matt and I talked a little bit, and we've been working on this together a little bit, uh, how to understand how our different disciplines interact in regards to virtue and virtue acquisition. Uh, Paul suggested doing a argumentative format, a debate format. I think he wants to introduce some conflict into the Baylor group. Um, <laughs> it's not going to work. But uh, so we're going to have, Matt and I are going to have an apparent disagreement today. An apparent disagreement. I want, yeah. Yes, but it's only for the camera. So, so yes. Okay. Um, so just to be clear, for, especially to all of my colleagues who are in psychology, I'm taking a certain viewpoint, and we're going to argue by opposition for purposes of clarification and learning, uh, but please don't hold all of my claims against me. Thank you. All right, to the arguments. And, yeah, in the back, just keep hollering at me if I decrease in volume. Is it good all right? You got it? Okay. More? <clears throat> I'm going to yell this thing. According to St. Thomas Aquinas, all right. According to St. Thomas Aquinas, a virtue is a habitus or a settled disposition of a power. When one translates Aquinas, it's natural to translate habitus as habit. Recent philosophical accounts of the virtues have done so. Sometimes they will qualify that a habitus is not a habit like cracking your knuckles, but often it's just called a habit. This is what kind of thing a virtue is. If we want to grow in virtue, and virtue is a habit, then we should look about how we grow in habits. Here, philosophers are often less than helpful. How do you acquire a habit? Habituation. What is habituation? Repeated activity. Go get virtue. <laughs> Moral education, the difficulties of acquiring virtue from various life situations, for example, after years of bad training, after a trauma, or in connection to addiction or chronic anxiety, for example, are only recently being treated in any depth. Moreover, where the tradition does have rich advice, the context of the advice often requires difficult translation. For example, Evagrius' advice to his fellow desert monks is sometimes difficult to apply in my life as a 21st century married man. So there's a reason philosopher would be interested in looking for help from other disciplines. Although we like to be the ones who our colleagues come to for answers, here there's reason for philosopher to walk down the hall and ask psychologists for help. Listen to the promise in the following quote. Everyone has a handout? There are handouts. On the back, there are the long quotes, and the front are the charts. So this is the first quote on the back. Listen to the promise in this. In the past decade, our understanding of the neurology and psychology of habits and the way patterns work within our lives, societies, and organizations has expanded in ways we couldn't have imagined 50 years ago. We, not, we know why habits emerge, how they change, and the science behind the mechanics. We know how to break them into parts and rebuild them to our specifications. We understand how to make people eat less, exercise more, work more efficiently, and live healthier lives. Transforming a habit isn't necessarily easy or quick. It isn't always simple, but it is possible, and now we understand how. So we should be very optimistic. But are these habits what Aquinas is talking about when he talks about habitus? There are at least three more similarities to give us hope. Both types of habits are stable and resistant to change. Both are acquired through repeated action. And once possessed, both types of habits make their actions easy, like second nature. 
So I'll expand on these three similarities. I explain what I'm calling the standard account of psychological habit. So now go to the front of your handout. Dewey calls the following the habit loop. This is the, this is the uh, simple habit loop. This loop, when repeated, forms a habit which connects the routine to the cue, even apart from the reward once the habit is established. This process within our, this is Duhigg, this process within our brains is a three-step loop. First, there is a cue, a trigger that tells your brain to go into automatic mode and which habit to use. Then there is a routine, which can be physical or mental or emotional. Finally, there is a reward, which helps your brain figure out if this particular loop is worth remembering for the future. Over time, this loop, cue, routine, reward, cue, routine, reward, becomes more and more automatic. The cue and reward become intertwined until a powerful sense of anticipation and craving emerges. The habit loop presented by Duhigg is simple, but recent literature adds complexity, which recognizes interior mental components to ha of habits. Instead of the routine be trig being triggered by a cue, a mental representation of the routine is triggered. The activity is then activated or inhibited depending on the situation and often in relation to some goal. So this is a second chart. This is another representation of a more complex habit structure. The growing literature recognizes a number of key mental events in the life of a habit. Despite the variety of psychological models of habit, the two mentioned being only a couple of many, there are at least three constant features of a habit across models. Acquisition through repeated activity, automaticity, and stability. Psychological habits and virtues seem to have these features in common. Repeated action is the means by which a psychological habit is formed, just as is how an acquired virtue is formed. Psychological habits have automaticity, which means they do not require effort. In other words, they're like second nature, they're easy. The cognitive aspect of a habit introduces more places between cueing and performance for a habit to be interrupted, but automaticity requires the interruption to keep the habitual action from being performed once cued. Finally, habits are stable dispositions, and much of their power comes from their stability. Even in people who have lost the last 30 years of memories and can't make new memories, they can develop habits that allow them to perform many of the normal functions of life. Despite the initial promise of psychological habits for understanding virtue, I'm going to argue that the standard account of psychological habit fails to be helpful for three reasons. First, and these are the three conditional premises on the front of the handout. If the standard account is going to help us understand virtue, then such habits must allow contrary exterior action, but they don't. If psychological habits as standardly understood are going to help us understand virtue, then they can't be the types of things that hinder virtuous action, but they are. Third and finally, if they have the same kinds of habit, if they are the same kinds of habits and virtues, then they must be the kinds of things that are morally praiseworthy, but they aren't. And if these three things are right, then it would be a mistake to turn to psychology to help us understand virtue formation. So let's consider these three things in more detail. Virtues involve contrary exterior action, but psychological habits do not. An act can be analyzed into its interior and exterior aspects, understood through an act's object and end by Aquinas. The exterior act can be understand, understood as what was done, independent of the motive. If we extract, abstract from particular actions and think of act types, for example, taking what belongs to another, walking in a field, helping someone in need, we have the exterior action. The interior action concerns the motive or reason for action. Why is one performing the exterior act? The exterior and interior are united in human action, which is an example, sorry, which is an action that proceeds from intellect and will. The human act of a virtue has the same interior act. For example, temperate acts are always for good in relation to the pleasures of, pleasures of touch, but often has different exterior acts. For example, sometimes it is temperate to eat cake and have another drinks, have an, another drink. <laughs> 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 um, sometimes it's temperate not to have them. In his essay, Virtue is Not a Habit, 
Servet Pinkers argues that habit as understood in ordinary discourse has this problem. The creativity of virtue is what habits lack. Pinkers considers exterior action of being silent. This is the second big quote on the back of the handout. The creativity of virtue also involves invention with respect to the manner of acting. There are a hundred different ways to perform the same material action after all, and it is perhaps the way a person acts that best distinguishes the personality of a man and most clearly manifests his virtue and his human worth. Should I speak or remain silent? And in which way should I speak? Silence itself can have many different meanings. There is a silence which bespeaks an absence of mind and one that betokens careful attention. I see only careful attention out in front of me. There is an approving silence in the kind that indicates disapproval. There is a silence of boredom and a silence that betokens discipline. There is the religious silence that is filled with the presence of God. Each action that presents itself poses a problem for us and obliges us to invent a solution. Virtue then requires a range of exterior action, a kind of creativity in action um, upon some trigger. Unlike virtues, psychological habits respond to a cue with a single material or exterior act. <clears throat> a cue is connected to a routine or habitual action that is some exterior act or the representation of that act. <clears throat> of course, psychologists recognize that one may be cued to some action and still perform some other action. But here the person is not acting habit habitually. They're not acting from their habit. They're having to effortfully act against the habit. So the claim isn't that psychological habit is incompatible with a range of exterior action, but that exterior action does not proceed from a psychological range. Uh, sorry, psychological range does not, sorry, the range of exterior action does not proceed from a single habit. So in this way, virtue is different from a psychological habit. Second, the habit of virtue is that by which virtuous acts are performed and thus never inhibits virtuous acts. But psychological habits sometimes inhibit virtuous action. This one follows, this objection follows from the previous one. As explained, virtues sometimes require conflicting exterior action. Sometimes in danger, you must be calm and wait. Sometimes you must run. Sometimes you must fight. On the standard account of psychological habit, though, the cue brings about the same action each time. If I have a psychological habit of response to danger, I will habitually act the same way. Since virtue requires a variety of actions, at least some of the time, my habitual response will conflict with the demands of virtue, making virtuous action difficult. One might object that I'm treating psychological habits in too coarse-grained of a way. Maybe there are a variety of courage-like psychological habits for a variety of dangers. For example, I could have different habits regarding the dangers of a rattlesnake and the dangers of an oven fire. Psychological habits, in other words, aren't so clunky that I end up responding to every danger with a fire extinguisher. This response has two problems, though. First, if habits have to be more fine-grained in their cue than something like general like danger or sensible good, the virtues will not be habits in any standard way. Normally, temperance is the virtue regarding sensible goods, and courage is the virtue regarding fear or danger. Second, even, in very, similar, even very similar cues require different responses. For example, generosity on Aristotle's division is the virtue regarding minor spending and receiving. Sometimes the generous person gives to a homeless person who asks for money. And sometimes, due to factors the virtuous person is aware of, including one's bank account, the needs of her household, and other charitable giving, the generous person does not give. But this has almost nothing to do with the cue. In this case, then, if one has a psychological habit of giving upon such requests, it will make it more difficult to act virtuously when generosity requires not giving. Although psychological habits are often formed in relation to some goal, habits become less responsive to goals and intentions as the association between the cue and habituation becomes solidified. The firmer the psychological habit is, the more of a hindrance the habits will be when something different than the habitual response is necessary in response to the habit's cue. Moreover, as a recent review of the psychology of habits summarizes, behavior prediction studies reveal that people often act out of habit, 
even when it is in contrary to their intention. Imagine trying to quit smoking. If this is right, then sometimes psychological habits inhibit virtue. Third, virtues are what make a person praiseworthy, but psychological habits do not make a person praiseworthy. In book two of the Nicomachean Ethics, Aristotle argues that a virtue is a state or disposition. Here's how his argument works. Virtue and vices are capacities, states, or feelings. We are praised and blamed for virtue and vice, but we are not praised and blamed for capacities or feelings. So virtue is a state. Of course, psychological habits are states too, so I need to extend Aristotle's argument. A key feature of psychological habits is their automaticity. The cue signals the habit to begin, and unless it is resisted, the habit takes place automatically, without executive control. In the review of the recent psychological literature on habit, Wood and Ringer expand on automaticity. This is on the back of your hand as well. Two defining features of habit automaticity are activation by recurring context clues and insensitivity to short-range goals, aka not goal-dependent, including changes in value of response outcomes and the response outcome contingency. Additional features that apply to most habitual responses include speed and efficiency, limited thought, rigidity, and integration of sequences of response that can be ex executed as a unit. The automaticity of psychological habit is what gives it its character of being like second nature, but is also, I argue, what keeps such habits from being praiseworthy the way the virtue is praiseworthy. Action, actions and dispositions are morally praiseworthy by being connected with freedom. For example, someone who abstains from cake because they don't like texture is not praiseworthy for being temperate. The temperate person abstains from cake in order to obey right reason, enjoy sensible goods in their proper moderation. Full-grown virtues on Aquinas' account make actions, actions second nature in the sense that it is easy and pleasant, but not by eliminating the need for intellect and will, which are the sources of human action. Although virtue reduces the struggle to perform virtuous acts, Aquinas still thinks an agent must choose to use his or her virtue. And if this is right, and it explains how even the virtuous person sins, then vir virtues do not have automaticity in the way that habits do. And the lack of automaticity is connected to the praiseworthiness of virtue. Performing a virtuous action is still chosen by the virtuous person, but performing a habit is not so chosen. In fact, the actions of a habit persist as the review article explains, with little guidance from intentions. Pinkers makes the point in the following way. This is, I think, the last quote on your handout. An action performed on the basis of habit does not entail that attentive presence of reason and that personal engagement of free will, which gives our actions their whole worth and their entire human value. The automatism of habit deprives an action of precisely the thing that gives it its moral dimension, namely, the fact that it proceeds from a reflective decision and a freely consented to commitment. Psychological habits, then, are not the kind of disposition that are praiseworthy. One might object that such habits are, can be created or modified voluntarily. For example, I could choose to develop a habit of exercise. In that case, it's, I could. In that I could I, anytime I want. It, in that case, it seems my habit of exercise is praiseworthy. Clearly, the effortful and chosen exercising that builds the habit is praiseworthy. But how about the automatic activity of the habit once developed? It depends on what the right description of this automaticity is. If the correct description is that the habitual action follows a cue independently of intention or executive function, then I think it is not praiseworthy in the way that virtue is. If instead the correct description is that the habitual activity follows the cue in the context of goal direction, which is something like the view Nancy Snow has recently developed, a virtuous action with automaticity, then the habitual action might be praiseworthy. But the first description seems more accurate for paradigm cases of automaticity. As we have seen, as habits form, they become less dependent on goal-directed activity and the agent's intentions. These things, 
The interior acts of an agent remain a key aspect of virtuous activity. So, psychological habits are not the kind of things that are praiseworthy. If psychology of habit is going to aid us in understanding virtue, then these aspects of the standard account must not be rigid for all psychological habits. But explaining how that might work is up to my colleague. Okay. So my colleague has made some thoughtful and important uh, observations about habits as they're uh, conceived and construed in the psychological tradition. For to gain any further clarity on the topic through this interdisciplinary dialogue, then it seems to me that my task is twofold. So the first is I need to clear up any conceptual or definitional misunderstandings about habit. And secondly, I have to try to carve out a potential space or way of thinking about habit uh, that's amenable to virtue. It is not an easy task. It's one which we will not complete probably satisfactorily today. But it is one that uh, I think we can begin. And this is the start of a fruitful dialectic between the disciplines. So before I begin with my pre preliminary uh, considerations, I want to talk about a word about the pervasiveness of habits. Uh, sort of what we colloquially talk about habits. So um, if you're sitting there thinking to yourself, well, I'm not really influenced or motivated by habits. Uh, this is the point, right? The chance is that you probably really are. Habits work in some sense to free up our cognitive real estate. Habits work because uh, the benefit of them is that you don't have to give sort of attentive, deliberate uh, focus to them, and that they can sort of once establish act and run to completion without much thought. Um, so for example, some of you may um, walk to class a particular way, right? And you notice that when you're walking to a particular class, you always go the same way. You always shift to one side of the stairwell at a particular time. You always go around one sort of planter in a particular direction. And this is sort of an established ingrained habit. Um, for me, I, I roll through a particular stop sign uh, near my house all the time. Um, <laughs> And what I do is I kind of come up to it, and I swing hard to the right, and then I just roll through the stop sign. I make a right turn through the stop sign. Now, when don't I do it? If I notice a car coming in the opposite direction, my intention sort of changes. And I think to myself, well, I'll stop. However, what's interesting is if I'm on, the, on my cell phone talking to somebody, and my attention, uh, my attention is not fully given to my intention to stop, if I'm distracted, I almost always default to the habit. So I'm talking to my mom. I see a car coming up, and I roll through the stop sign anyway. And this recently came to uh, fruition. I, I rolled through the stop sign while talking to my mom on the phone um, habitually. And the person in the car took a picture of me. They, as I rolled through the stop sign, they pulled out an actual digital camera and took a picture of me. <laughs> Uh, I noticed because it flashed, which I suspect made for a terrible picture because all the windows were up. So, uh, but sort of other examples, right? Um, you are in the habit of saying I love you to somebody on the telephone, um, with people you love, you're talking on the telephone. When a telemarketer calls you, you finish the call and you say, I love you, right? <laughs> these, are, these are habits, right? These are sort of colloquially how we talk about habits. Um, my wife and I eat ice cream every night uh, before bed. I'm not exaggerating every night before bed. <laughs> However, during, <laughs> during Lent, we decide to give up sort of sweets, right? But I have a routine, and the routine is cued. The kids go to bed. I hear it get quiet. It's dark outside, right? My wife comes down in her pajamas, and I sort of spring into action. I go, I get this tray. I get two cups of water. I go to the freezer. I get the ice cream. I start scooping, right? During Lent, we decide we're going to give up ice cream. <coughs> Fine. 
the first three to four weeks of Lent, I spend seeing the darkness outside, hearing the quietness of the kids, seeing my wife come down in pajamas, and I'm reaching for the glasses, right? And I'm telling her about my day, and I go to the freezer, and I pull out the ice cream, and I, right? oh, we gave it up for Lent, right? This is a habit. I'm cued, and I engage it. So for large swaths of the year, whatever 365 minus 40 is, I engage in the habit of eating ice cream every night, right? And then for 40 days, I have to try to break this habit. Okay, my point is this, that some idea of what we talk about habits, we sort of experience all the time. We engage in all the time, but we don't often experience them because they sort of occur outside of our conscious awareness, and they're supposed to. They free us up to do more demanding cognitive tasks. Okay. Uh, I want to talk about what we sort of know as a field. Um, And this refers to Brandon's uh, last point in the power of habit. Transforming a habit isn't necessarily easy or quick, he reads. It isn't always simple, but it is possible, and now we understand how. This is a wonderfully positive view of of habit. Um, And I think it sort of overstates the case. Uh, While we certainly have increased our understanding of how habits work, transforming habits is a complex process that's related to our temperaments, our personalities, our personal values and goals, cognitive resources such as our memory capacity, our attention, our ability to attend to stimuli. This is evidenced by a recent study which sought to map habit formation in health-related behaviors and the average range of time it took to establish a health behavior, the average range, 15 to 254 days, right? (laughs) The idea here is that when somebody says it only takes 40 days to establish a new habit, That's absolute nonsense because habit depends so much on who you are, how you are, your temperament, your values, your goals, right, your cognitive capacities and abilities. Okay. So as a field, I I want us to temper this view that, hey, we know how to do it. It's super simple, right? I would would have, as a psychologist, I would make so much money if I could easily change people's bad habits with that level of confidence, right? Okay. Preliminary considerations. Four preliminary considerations I want to make. The first is distinctions between actions and behaviors. The second is, the second is distinctions between automaticity and habit. Uh, the third is, what is the state of the habit literature? And the fourth is the standard account that my uh, colleague described. So first, I think it's helpful when discussing automaticity and habits to distinguish between behaviors and actions. So for the purpose of this talk, and I won't be addressing this much explicitly, but it should be in your mind as I'm speaking, Behaviors will be defined as having the characteristics of being reflexive, not goal-directed, and unable to be intervened upon by the agent. So, For example, um, a behavior, sort of when I I start tickling my son, right? I'm tickling him, tickling him. He's laughing, right? He can't really stop this. It's reflexive. He he, he can't intervene to say, I'm just going to stop laughing right now, right? This is a behavior. And I want to distinguish this from actions, uh, which are, have a more sort of purposive, intentionally willed character to them. Actions, on the other hand, proceed from an agent in a way that is either directly willed, that is that the agent has intentionally and consciously initiated the action, or is able to be intervened upon uh, at any given point in the action sequence. Actions are also ordered toward particular ends, goals, or values. This is an important distinction because not all automaticity and not all habits exhibit the same features. I don't want to call all of them actions. Some of them, some of them will simply be behaviors. I will be arguing, however, that there's a type of automated habit which we consider an action, 
that is not purely reflexive, it's not unwilled, and it's not without intention. Uh, and in this way, I think it opens it up to be, calling, to be called a virtue. Consideration number two regarding the automaticity habit distinction. This is part of the problem in the field of habit research. These terms are oftentimes used interchangeably, automaticity and habit. But uh, for careful researchers, there is a clear distinction between the two. Habits are a type of automaticity. Habits are learned automatic responses that have sort of specific features. However, things like priming, classical conditioning, and non-associative learning are considered types of implicit automatic processes that we don't consider to be habits because they either lack activation by reoccurring contexts or uh, they, have a certain, uh, they lack an insensitivity to short-term changes and goals. So not everything that is automatic or automaticity is a habit, but everything that is a habit is characterized by automaticity. Um, and I'm going to say the same for virtue. Not everything, not all habits are virtues, but every virtue is a habit. It's just qualified a little more. So not only does the, uh, a virtuous habit have the ability to be cued and uh, also an insensitivity to short-term goal changes, but we add upon that that it sort of confers a certain aptness in doing good um, and sort of a right use of it. So we're just sort of, imagine concentric circles, right? You have automaticity, and within automaticity you have habits, within habits you have virtues, right? You have these sort of concentric rings. All right, regarding the state of the habit literature, one should be aware of the complexity of the topic and the various sub-disciplines within psychology which it touches. So naturally, um, behaviorists have looked at habits for a long time. You think of associative learning with Pavlov, uh, Skinner, right? Operant and classical conditioning, anything with stimulus response or reward and punishment. Uh, cognitive psychologists, as my colleague mentioned, have also started taking this up. They're looking at mental representations of goals. How do we mentally represent certain habit patterns? Um, memories and different types of memories. Do we store habit patterns in our procedural memory or in our declarative memory? Do we have conscious access to them or do they occur sort of uh, unnoticed? Um, neurobiologists, neuropsychologists have also started looking at this. They're looking at which parts of the brain are associated in habit acquisition, habit um, uh, formation, extinction of habits, which midbrain structures, which dopaminergic systems are providing sort of rewards and strengthening sort of synaptic uh, uh, junctures. This is a hotly sort of contested and researched topic. And each subdiscipline approaches it from a different angle and provides something unique, I think. But I think it's important to recognize that these subdisciplines aren't often in dialogue with one another. And so you have people looking at uh, dual process models, right? So do we process things sort of consciously or uh, intuitively and emotionally? Um, so we have computational models of habit development. We have yet to develop a systematic theory of habit that sort of cuts across all of these sub-disciplines. So this leads me to my final sort of preliminary remark. The standard account that my colleague presented, um, I'll accept it as correct. Um, on the condition that it's recognized that it is a bird's eye view. It is a, a really high view, and you're seeing broad features of the landscape here. But there are certainly, within the habit literature, uh, researchers who are looking at things in a way that I think are much more amenable to what we need in order to consider, consider habits virtues. And so 
I think when you take the broad view and you're trying to get a, a summary or review of the literature, that, that's probably accurate. I think that standard view is accurate. But I'm going to pick up on a thread that I think, um, or a framework that I think allows us to talk about virtues, philosophical virtues, as psychological habits. So a psychological account of virtue that accommodates philosophical virtues. As my colleague noted, the standard view of psychological habits is not a favorable framework for understanding philosophical virtues. However, I believe that the work of John Barg, uh, he originally did his work at NYU, I think he's at Yale now, uh, he has a theory of habits as goal-directed automatic actions. Goal-directed automatic actions. And I think his theory addresses many of our concerns. The components of this theory also have significant empirical support. A crucial discovery that laid the groundwork for the types of habits which we might call virtues was a study that found that certain habitual behaviors are not associated with cues. Uh, they're not associated with or cued by environmental stimuli. So as, as Brandon noted, there are types of habits that are cued by environmental stimuli. Right? I see something in the environment and sort of a certain behavioral uh, pattern unfolds automatically to completion without intervention by any sort of executive functioning. But Barr found that there is another type. Right? He, he's more of a cognitive uh, psychologist in this regard. He found that um, the association that exists in his study is not primarily between the environment and the behaviors, but that it's between uh, mental representations of goals and mental representations of certain habits that allow us to achieve those goals. So it, it doesn't exist primarily. The association doesn't first exist in the physical here. It exists primarily in our mental representations first and foremost. And I think this is helpful. Here's his account. The frequent and consistent pairing of situational features with goal-directed behaviors develops chronic situation to representation links. Like other mental rep representations, goals and intentions held in our memory are activated by environmental stimuli. So we hold a, a mental re representation of a goal. I want to be a good dad. It's my goal. It can be activated by environmental stimuli. So I see a knife sitting on the edge of uh, the counter. And I see my 10-month-old sort of crawling around. I want to be a good dad. Part of being a good dad means I keep my kids safe. Uh, I see the knife sitting there on the counter. Seeing the knife will trigger, trigger my goal. I want to be a good dad. Right? And then certain actions will follow from that. Representations of an individual's chronically held goals can repeatedly become activated in the same situation so that the mental association between situational features and goal-directed behaviors becomes automatized. When an individual encounters the relevant situational features, the representation of associated goal is directly but non-consciously activated. The activated representation in turn sets in train plans to achieve the goal, which flexibly unfold in interaction with the changing information from the environment. So here's the idea. You've got a goal in mind. If that goal is chronically activated, hey, I want to be a good dad. Hey, I want to be a good dad. Hey, I want to be a good dad. I can start to associate that goal with certain situational features in my environment. Those situational features will come to activate that goal. But what I also associate with that goal in, through mental representation is a series of actions or behaviors that allow me to achieve that goal. Through repeatedly engaging in those behaviors and achieving my goal, or at least incrementally moving toward my goal in a satisfactory way, I begin to pair mentally those behaviors with this goal. So when that goal is activated by something in the environment, those behaviors become really accessible to me. And as Barg notes, 
It sets in train plans to achieve that goal. But here's what I think is important. In this view, the actions that I engage in unfold flexibly in interaction with the changing information from the environment. And this is sort of a different view than the standard view. Um, I can engage, I can make changes within the unfolding of these, these behaviors. I can make changes, I can make um, uh, subtle or drastic changes as these unfold. Okay, what do I think is interesting about this? First, studies have shown that the activation of mentally, mentally represented goals makes more ac accessible concepts and actions in my memory that are associated with that goal. So the idea here is, uh, like, look at these lights, right? Imagine stage lights, they're a nice example. If each of the stage lights is one of my goals, what happens when a stage light lights up? One of these top ones, it shines down and it has a sort of particular radius to it. You can see things. If this whole area were dark and one light went on, you would be able to see what was within that radius. That would sort of be visually accessible to you. Something similar happens when our goals are activated. The range of behaviors and concepts related to those goals become really easily accessible to us. Things that aren't as directly related to those goals in my mental representation aren't as easily acceptable to me. So I think this is interesting because a range of behaviors that are associated with my mentally represented goals become easily accessible to me. Not just a single, there is a type of habit, as Brandon noted, that is cued by the environment and you engage in the same particular behavior every time. But that's not what we're talking about with goal-directed automaticity. We're talking about having access to a range of behaviors. Goal activation, while it does set in motion plans to achieve the goals through habitual action, goals also influence what we pick up in the environment. And I think this is interesting, depending on what your goal is. So uh, we're at a faculty party. And my goal at a faculty party is to just have a fun time. Right? It's my goal. I just want to have fun. So what I pick up, what I notice, how I interpret the situation and what I remember is, a, is directly tied to my goals in the situation. So what I notice when I go to a faculty party and I want to have fun, it's like, oh, look at Marita. She looks so happy. Gosh, she's so laid back. That's so nice to see. She's having a good time. She, right? um, I say, oh, look at John. Gosh, he's not wearing a suit and tie. He's in a track suit. That's cool. What laid back. Right? Um, I remember different features of the environment depending on what my goal is. Now, if my goal going to the faculty party is to impress my colleagues, what I remember, how I interpret things, and what, I, uh, and, and what I perceive is different. Um, so I want to impress my colleagues, and I say, oh gosh, John didn't talk to me for very long. Right? I didn't pay attention that he's in a tracksuit. I saw that he only talked to me for three minutes. Um, and it seemed like he wasn't very interested in what I had to say. And I saw Stephen, but Stephen left me talking to his wife. He didn't talk to me at all. Oh gosh, I mean, maybe they don't like me. Right? What I notice is different depending on my goal. So I think this is interesting. Um, Goals give us access to sort of a different way of perceiving our environment, what we remember. Okay. Lastly, uh, no, not lastly, not even close to lastly. <laughs> uh, the notion of goals gives a certain motivation and value to habitual actions. I think this is important. Because I have a goal, this goal can sort of qualify my actions. That not all actions are the same, and I'll talk about this in a moment. Goals are not, and this is important, goals are not generic impersonal representations. I don't just have a goal to sort of be just 
and it's sort of this amorphous, vague blob of a goal in my head. Mentally represented goals are nuanced, intricate uh, mental representations. They take into account what I've read. They take into account what I've experienced. They take into account, um, uh, yeah, what I know about Aristotle, what I know about St. Thomas, right? All of this goes into my me mental representation of I want to be just. It's a nuanced thing. It's not vague, but also it includes myself in it. That's why it's my goal, my aim. In my mental representation, there's some aspect of how I respond vis-a-vis -vis this thing. So what is justice for me, Matt Bruninger, being the type, and, uh, the type of individual that I am, my temperament, my disposition, my... Some aspect of me is caught up in my mental representation of this. So our goals aren't just these like, hey, I want to be good. Or I don't want to be. They're nuanced, and they contain an aspect of myself in them. And I think this is important. Uh, Aristotle says something like, virtue is relative to the mean of right reason and the individual. Right? I have to be present in this mental representation of my goal. Second, uh, or fourth. Based on dual, uh, dual processing models, goal-directed behaviors um, allow for intervention from higher-order cognitive faculties. So this particular view of goal-directed automaticity says that even though an, uh, a process can sort of be triggered unconsciously or beyond your conscious awareness, you have the capacity to intervene cognitively at any point in the action sequence. This is what allows for the flexible adaptation to uh, environmental stimuli, that I'm not stuck in this with this particular type of habit. There are other types of habits that unfold to completion automatically without intervention, cognitive intervention, but this particular type allows us to intervene. We can, we can uh, sort of uh, bring executive function to it. Lastly, uh, and importantly, this perspective has repeatedly shown and reported that goal-directed behaviors are not rigid, reflective reactions to stimuli. They're intelligent, flexible responses that unfold in concert with situational cues, and they display many of the same qualities as consciously chosen actions. OK. Based on this framework, can we address my colleague's concerns? Let's see. His first concern was that virtues involve contrary exterior actions, but psychological habits do not. Um, I think I mean, that's, a great, that's a great point. My colleague noted that the standard view of habits does not allow for the creativity and variability in exterior uh, expression. He's correct. This type of habit, which is characterized by being a particular response to an environmental cue, does not allow for that. However, goal-directed automaticity does. It allows for a flexible unfolding of goal-directed behaviors in concert with the environment. Here's an example. A person intends to pick up a pencil. My goal, pick up the pencil. Pick up the pen, right? I can execute this intention, this goal, without uh, much guidance of lower level processes, such as deciding which muscles to move. Right? It's automatic. When I think to myself, I'm going to pick up this pencil, I would actually probably be inhibited in my ability to pick up the pencil if I thought, OK, start from the shoulder, contract <laughs> this muscle, whatever it is, and not that one. Right? OK. Well, something's happened with my forearm. Now I need to rotate my forearm so that my fingers are oriented to, right? I don't engage in that. It's an automatic process that begins to unfold in reference to my goal, pick up the pencil. However, um, what is happening is there is visual and tactile feedback from the environment that re remains essential to the act. It's not an act that I, like, I just go, 
Oh, sorry. It was that's how I that's how I memorized it, right? That's how automatic it is. Just didn't get it that time. Uh, no, you'll notice that when I engage in this automatic behavior, this automatic action, I'm still altering the action flexibly and intelligently based on feedback from the environment. Oh, I'm actually at the front of the pen. I need to go to the back. That comes in visually. I adjust. I alter. Does that change the automaticity of the habit? No. no. I mean, there's still a certain automaticity to it, but there's a flexible application, which I think addresses that first concern that I, I'm not rigidly locked into. Right, too bad, got it wrong that time. I can flexibly adapt. Second, the habit of virtue is that by which virtuous acts are performed and thus never inhibit virtuous action. But psychological habits sometimes inhibit virtuous action. The standard account of habit suggests that cues bring about the same action each time. However, as noted above, goal-directed automatic accounts do not necessitate this. So I think the same flexibility that I, and sort of intelligent action that I can express in an unfolding automatic response addresses this second concern as well. Third, virtues are what make a person praiseworthy, but psychological habits do not make a person praiseworthy. While certain types of automaticity and habitual behavior are certainly not praiseworthy, the type of habit articulated by goal-directed automaticity, I suggest, is praiseworthy for two reasons. First, it has the potential to be praiseworthy because it's tied to an end or goal. So as my colleague noted, abstaining from beer uh, might seem virtuous. Gosh, this person doesn't drink at all, right? Or abstaining from that piece of chocolate cake. Gosh, he's abstaining from that cake. What a virtuous man. Now, if I'm abstaining from the cake, because I don't like the texture of it, it's not a virtuous act, right? Part of what makes a virtuous act is the right intention, right? Having a goal, goal-directed automaticity is important because it opens up the prospect that my actions can have a certain value to them, a certain moral dimensions opened. I'm engaged in these behaviors because of this goal, and this is a morally praiseworthy goal, right? I'm not eating the cake because I want to have good health, or I'm not eating the cake because I... The goal opens up the possibility of recognizing a certain uh, value to the actions. Okay. Secondly, um, I noted that uh, goal-directed automaticity allows for cognitive intervention at any point in the habit-action sequence. It does not imply a rigid, reflexive behavior. Therefore, even habits in this view retain the character of being free and voluntary. Because I can intervene, because I can sort of exercise a certain agency in the sequence, I think that it means that there is a certain moral culpability that I have, and it retains a certain praiseworthiness. The fact that I have the ability to bring right reason to it means that I can uh, be praised or uh, ridiculed for the behavior. Concluding thoughts. Certain researchers have shown that intentions and goals are more important in guiding behavior for weaker habits than stronger habits. The influence of intentions and goals seems to diminish the more habits strengthened. Right? And we sort of experience this to be true. When I first start a habit, I have to think about it really hard. I want to do this thing. I want to do this thing. But as the habit gets strengthened, I don't have to bring that intention or goal to mind as much. It sort of unfolds naturally. And I think this is a good thing. Because if we have an established virtue, say of chastity, but in a given moment, a certain uh, uh, lustful or impure sexual desire arouses, one's less likely to act upon that momentary desire or intention 
by virtue of the fact that they sort of have this virtuous disposition or virtuous habit. Right? So I think it works to our benefit. Um, however, defaulting to this virtuous habit is still characterized as being free and voluntary because we can intervene. Right? This leads to a second thought regarding the nature of goals. I think that when we think about goals, uh, we can think about goals as being hierarchical. Certain goals subsume lower goals and the actions associated with those lower goals. So for example, be, wanting to be a good dad, my goal of wanting to be a good dad might naturally subsume under it the goals of wanting to keep my kids safe and the responses that go with that, the goals of wanting to, uh, what else goes with being a good dad? <laughs> right? Uh, you know, wanting to keep my kids alive and healthy, um, like feeding them and all of this sort of thing. Okay. Goals can be hierarchical or nested. So right, the goal of holiness might subsume other goals. I think this is important. I also think that certain goals can be in conflict with other goals. So if you activate one goal, there are certain behaviors that you associate with it that might impede the, action, the activation of another goal. Okay. And lastly, um, I think habit formation, even if it's not the type of habit that we consider virtuous, is still important to give to children uh, because it's easier, I think, to bring a habit in accord with the right intention than it is to start from scratch and try to cultivate the right intention and cultivate the right behaviors. So what I mean is, um, let's say, for example, that my son Asher comes down the stairs every morning and he says, uh, good morning, Papa, I love you. And he does do this, actually, every morning. He says, good morning, Papa, I love you. I say, good morning, buddy. Every morning he does this, right? Rain, snow, sleet, sunshine. Uh, if I'm in a bad mood, he does it. If he's in a bad mood, he does it, right? Now, one might argue that sort of this is a habit, and, and he does it because we've told him time and time again, it's really important in the morning to say hi to one another, to be kind, to start off the day expressing love to God and to, to family, right? And so he's doing it because we've told him to, on authority. Is this virtue? No. However, it would be easier for him, when he turns 14, 15, 16, to turn that into a virtuous action by simply saying, oh, I'm doing this because this is what is sort of due and justice to my parents, or this is generosity, or this is charity, or, right? To bring that habitual action in accord with sort of the right intention, rather than starting from scratch and saying at 15, okay, I gotta wake up, think that I, I need to show mom and dad the right respect and justice, and I need to be charitable, and, so he's got to hold that intention in mind and come down and figure out what to say, right? I think it's good to build habits even if they're not yet virtuous habits because it's easier than to sort of uh, build the intention behind them or cultivate the attention behind them. You could even have an aha moment with these sort of things where you say, gosh, I've only been doing this thing because my parents told me, but I should be doing it because this is what is due to this person, you know, injustice. There it is, right? Now it's a virtuous action from that, that moment forward. Um, I have some free psychological advice here about habit formation. Uh, how to impede unwanted habit performance. Uh, increasing cognitive control. So one way to impede unwanted habit formation uh, is, I'm sorry, habit performance, is to simply say, don't do X, right? Um, don't do this. And pay attention to your actions. And when you do do it, note it. Make note of it. So you're increasing cognitive control. You're not decreasing habit strength in any way, but you're decreasing cognitive control. 
Manage exposure to habit cues, so change your environment. If you go to a Chinese buffet, rather than getting the big plate and facing the buffet, you get a small plate and turn your back to the buffet, right? Manage the cues that signal to you that you you're to begin certain uh, behavior sequences. How to promote habit formation. Repetition in stable contexts with appropriate rewards. Um, they did an interesting study where they reminded students to engage in a particular behavior via electronic message, right? Send them a text. Remind them every day to do this virtuous action or this particular behavior. What they found was that that actually worked against habit formation. <laughs> Automaticity wasn't developed, and context cues weren't uh, established. So what, the, per what the, the student looks for is that cell phone message. That's the cue to do the action. But when you stop sending them the message, the behavior stops. So finding the appropriate cues to signal um, the habit sequence is important as well. Faith and Reason Podcasts, new media for the new evangelization from Franciscan University of Steubenville. Find more at faithandreason.com. <laughs>